Today on Categorical Imperatives, we have the second and final part in our episode on Brutus versus Publius in the Founders' Face-Off. Hey, greetings and welcome back once again to Categorical Imperatives. Uh, as always, I am your host, Lockheed and Liberal, and I do want to thank you all so much for joining me here today. Uh, now, I would like to give a special, a special welcome to any new listeners out there. Uh, this is a podcast where we're going to be using legal theory and moral philosophy to discuss current events related to law, politics, and culture. Now, this is also the first uh, episode in what I think may well become a running series here on the show that I am uh, tentatively calling the Constitution in Context. The basic idea is that when most people read the Federalist Papers in the Anti-Federalist Papers, we read them as a sort of separate and atomistic thing as though these are just general proclamations made in a vacuum with no greater context, but these were debates between opposing parties that played out in real time, more or less either in person or in back-and-forth conversations in newspapers. Uh, and so we have been talking about judicial review specifically, and this is because specifically when you ask people uh, where, what is the source of judicial review, where do we look to find judicial review defined, there are two answers you'll tend to get. Uh, the first one is they may say, well, it's Marbury versus Madison. Uh, this is the first time the Supreme Court ever articulated their definition of that particular doctrine of judicial review. Uh, and the other answer you might also get uh, is they will say uh, Federalist 78, because this is the first time that we see uh, the doctrine of judicial review being discussed in a theoretical sense. The problem with both of these is that they are simply not true. Now, I think what many people are unaware of is that Federalist 78 was actually a response to a very uh, specific set of essays, uh, specifically Brutus's 8th and 11th essays. Now, Brutus was uh, an anti-Federalist. We're not absolutely sure of his identity. Most people think it's Robert Yates. I think it's much more likely it was Melanchthon Smith. Uh, so I'm just going to operate on the assumption that I'm right, and it was Melanchthon Smith and Publius. Uh, as you are more likely to know, uh, is really one pen name used by three different founders, James Madison, Alexander Hamilton, and John Jay. However, all of the Federalist papers that we will be talking about today under the pen name of Publius were all authored by Alexander Hamilton. So anyways, what we're really talking about here is Brutus's 8th through 15th essays in Federalist 78 through 81, which are actually a series of articles that were published uh, in New York uh, newspapers of the time that were essentially a debate happening back and forth. So when you read Federalist 78, what you are reading, and I mean this very literally, is he was very specifically responding almost point by point to Brutus's 8th and 11th essays. And that's how these sections of uh, the Brutus and Publius letters played out was as a back and forth over the nature of the judiciary. So, and, and that's why uh, I, I think I made the point in the last video probably uh, that 
Uh, if you are only familiar with Federalist 78, but you're not really familiar with Brutus's essays, or you don't understand the relationship these two have to each other, I think it's it's fair to say you probably don't understand Federalist 78. Because not only is that half of the only half of an argument, it's the counter argument. It's the other half. It's the response, uh, which means that it really only fully makes context if you know what it's responding to. So, anyways, without further ado, let's uh, get into this episode for today. Uh, we are going to be talking. Uh, about in part one, and I'll link down in the description to it if you haven't seen it yet. Part one was a focus on Brutus's essays, uh, and so today we are going to be doing part two. This is going to be uh, Publius's replies. Uh, so this is the uh, second video. The first video is it's really important you go watch that first if you haven't seen it yet. So I will be putting a link to that. And so we will be getting to talking about Alexander Hamilton's responses right after this. All right, so Hamilton's response, judicial review affirmed. So with reference to Federalist 78, it is important to note that it presents an answer to the question of how to react to federal aggrandizement of power. Uh, and this is very different from an answer to the same question that Alexander Hamilton gave uh, in an early Federalist paper, specifically in Federalist 33, where he wrote, If the federal government should overpass the just bounds of its authority and make tyrannical use of its powers, the people whose creature it must appeal to the standard they have formed and take such measures to redress the injury done to the Constitution as the exigency may suggest and prudence justify. Acts of the larger society, which are not pursuant to its constitutional powers, but which are invasions of the residuary authorities of the smaller societies, will merely be acts of usurpation and will deserve to be treated as such. So what you notice there, not a single word about judicial review or the role of the courts uh, in uh, striking down legislative acts. Uh, violating the bounds of national authority. So, uh, redress, according to Publius, lies with the people alone. Only after Brutus published his thesis on judicial review and why, in his opinion, judicial review was intrinsically, though not necessarily intentionally, judicial supremacy, did Alexander Hamilton proceed to uh, advertise his view that judicial review could serve as a means of forestalling national encroachment on state authority. In effect, Hamilton seized on Brutus's arguments and, while denying the cataclysmic consequences Brutus predicted, adapted the argument to highlight the role of the court as a complete answer to the danger of national aggrandizement. So, in Federalist uh, 78 and 81, Hamilton sought to provide a point-by-point -point rejoinder to Brutus's charge. 
So we are going to be going through that. There's uh, six main points uh, that he makes here. We're going to be going through those one by one, really. Point one, the virtue of appointing judges to serve during good behavior. So to Hamilton, the anti-federalist criticism of this term of office for judges was but a symptom of the rage for objection which disorders the imaginations and judgment. This term of office for members of the judiciary represented, in fact, one of the most valuable and modern improvements in the practice of government. He says that if in a monarchy it was an excellent barrier to the despotism of the prince, in a republic it was no less excellent a barrier to the encroachment and oppression of the representative bodies. Hamilton sought to allay the fears of an activist judiciary. He said in a government composed of different departments of power, the judiciary from the nature of its functions will always hold dangerous will always hold the least dangerous amount of power to the political rights under the Constitution. Now he said while the executive holds the sword to the community and the legislature commands the purse, the judiciary has no influence over either sword or purse and can take no active resolution whatsoever, having neither force nor will but merely judgment. It was dependent on the aid of the executive arm even for the efficacy of his judgments. So permanency in office at Hamilton is vital to the firmness and independence to enable uh, it to pronounce all acts contrary to the manifest tenor of the Constitution void. Under a limited Constitution where certain actions are proscribed, if the court were not to have this power, all the reservations of particular rights or privileges enumerated would amount to nothing. Now, of course, Brutus had stated that he could not conceive of any alternative to judges serving for life. He said, I do not object that the judges hold their commissions during good behavior. I suppose that a proper provision provided they were properly responsible. He said, however, granting the judges the power as Hamilton would have it to pronounce acts contrary to the manifest tenor of the Constitution void, was to grant them supremacy. No greater power exists in one person over another than the authority to make the second person's acts null and void so that the will of the first predominates. This absolute veto power in the judiciary impaired unlimited dominance over the other two branches and Hamilton's reference to the power of the purse or the sword were mere platitudes since of what use are these active powers if they cannot be exercised except with the consent of the court? Absent restrictions on the judge's unbridled freedom of action, there was no reason why they should not dictate to and completely dominate the other branches of government. To this, Hamilton then took exception, and we move on to his second point. Judicial review does not mean judicial supremacy. So, Hamilton argued that declaring the acts of another branch of government void does not mean that the one making the pronouncement is necessarily supreme. 
It does not suppose a superiority in the judicial to the legislative power, since a constitution emanating from the people is in fact and must be regarded by the judges as a fundamental law. If there is an irreconcilable variance between the acts of the legislature and the constitution, the judges have no choice but to prefer the constitution to the statute, the intention of the people to the intention of their agents. Now, this argument was mere causatry on Hamilton's part for several reasons. For one thing, what makes the judges more faithfully representative of the people than the elected agents of the people? And if the latter consider their action to be consistent with the Constitution, from whence do the judges derive superior title to be acting on behalf of the people and declare it inconsistent? Indeed, the legislative agents are accountable to the people for their decisions while the judges are not. And so should one assume that the determination of the judges is more authoritative and faithful to the intervention of the people than that of their elected representatives above all, what would prevent the judge from asserting that there was a contradiction between a statute and the Constitution when on the face of the statute no such contradiction was apparent. And moreover, granting the judges the last word was subversive of the basic principles of Republican government since it removes from the people, the ultimate judges, the right and power to react and rectify what they regard as a misreading of the Constitution. Now, all of this had appeared uh, in the final paragraph of Brutus's essay number 15th, dealing with the judiciary. Had the construction of the Constitution been left with the legislature, they would have explained it at their peril if they exceeded their powers or sought to find in the spirit of the Constitution more than was expressed in the letter. The people for whom they derive their power could remove them and do themselves right. A constitution is a compact of people with their rulers, and if the rulers break the compact, the people have a right and ought to remove them and do themselves justice. But in order to enable them to do this with the greatest facility, those whom the people choose at stated periods should have the power in the last resort to determine the sense of the compact. If they determine contrary to the understanding of the people, an appeal will lie to the people uh, at the period when the rulers are to be elected, and they will have it in their power to remedy the evil, but this power is lodged instead in the hand of men independent of the people, and of their representatives, and who are not constitutionally accountable for their opinions, then no way is left to control them but with a high hand and an outstretched arm. So furthermore, according to Brutus, it was vain to claim that the declaring acts of Congress void did not signify judicial superiority. In fact, the organ of government qualified to pronounce the last word exercises dominance. 
The judges under the Constitution will control the legislature for the Supreme Court are authorized in the last resort to determine to what extent the powers of Congress are given under the Constitution. Hamilton declared it can be of no weight to say the courts on any pretense of repugnancy may substitute their own pleasure to the constitutional intentions of the legislature, the court must declare the sense of the law. And if they should be disposed to exercise will instead of judgment, the consequences would equally be the substitution of their pleasure to that of the legislative body. This, he said, would only go to show that should no judges distinct from the legislature, Hamilton himself, however, insisted that he offers no suggestion on how to forestall judges when they exercise this will instead of judgment. All right, point three, judicial review as a shield. So Hamilton sought to demonstrate that judicial review would serve to protect two exposed groups. The courts, he said, would operate as the bulwarks of a limited constitution against legislative encroachments. Hamilton thereby uh, sought to reassure the states that the federal judiciary, far from being a threat to the sovereignty as Brutus would have it, would act as their guardian in striking down every national attempt to encroach on state prerogatives. A second exposed group was that of minorities, and here, once again, the exercise of judicial review would operate to protect the rights of the individuals from the effects of those ill humors which the arts of designing men or their influence of particular conjunctures sometimes disseminate among the people themselves and which occasion dangerous innovations in the government and serious oppressions of the minor party in the community. So, Hamilton would go on that judicial independence was vital if the courts were to act against the legislative will in defending the rights of the states and of individuals. It would require an uncommon portion of fortitude in the judges to do their duty as faithful guardians of the Constitution, where legislative invasions of it had been instigated by the major voices of the community. Judicial independence required permanency by appointment, and inflexible and uniform adherence to the rights of these states under the Constitution and of individuals could not be expected from judges who hold their office by a temporary commission. But, of course, Brutus had all along acknowledged that appointment during good behavior was essential if judges were to enjoy that security and independence that would enable them to judge fairly and without fear of recrimination. This was not at all the issue. By raising the matter of tenure of office, Hamilton was really raising a straw man to knock down and to uh, score a cheap point, really. So permanency in office did not preclude the judges from dominating the legislature or executive and dictating to those branches of government which policies could stand and which could not. Judicial independence, Brutus would maintain, was vital 
but it did not entail the right of judicial domination. The distinction between judicial review and judicial supremacy was therefore, at least to Brutus, clear. While the former allowed and even required that the court strike down any law that was manifestly contrary to the express provisions of the Constitution, it did not empower the court to, to assert the unconstitutionality of a law on the basis of narrow and particularly subtle interpretation of the relevant constitutional provisions, uh, as Corwin had once said, quote, It is fairly evident that the Philadelphia Convention intended to provide a method for enforcing the direct prohibitions of the Constitution on Congress, but by the same token, there was originally a clear logical implication against judicial review of broader range, end quote. So, in effect, Hamilton took Brutus's charge that the exercise of judicial review by the Supreme Court would inevitably lead to the emasculation of the states and the consolidation of the country under one central government and cited judicial review as the best guarantee against national encroachment on state authority. So he really kind of skillfully, I, I would say, turned the tables on Brutus by brandishing judicial review as a foil against national aggrandizement, while conveniently forgetting that it could also be uh, used to serve to strike down state intrusions on national sovereignty. It was only in Federalist Number 80 that he finally did advert to this power over state legislation, but he illustrated it solely with reference of such clear-cut prohibitions of the imposition of duties on imported articles and the issuance of paper money. Now, of necessity, he said, the federal courts would have been empowered to overrule such as might be manifest uh, for contravention of the Articles of Union. So really implicitly, Hamilton was suggesting that anything less then a manifest contravention of the Constitution would not encounter judicial disallowance. Now here the latter role would, of course, be precisely the nemesis of state authority to which Brutus had referred. While at the same time, Hamilton, however, sidestepped the central charge of Brutus that the Constitution, by allowing the judges to interpret the Constitution, according to its spirit, effectively conferred to them absolute sovereignty to tell the other branches of the national government what the Constitution permitted and what it did not. In number 78, Hamilton simply declared that no one could suspect that the courts would attempt to impose their will on the coordinate branches of government, but did not explain why they would not. That analysis he left for Federalists. 81. All right, his point four, judicial supremacy denied. Hamilton opened his discussion with a long extract, a sort of precise of the anti-federalist argument uh, 
and in fact, largely the argument of Brutus in particular. He said, the authority of the proposed Supreme Court of the United States, which is to be a separate and independent body, will be superior to that of the legislature. The power construing the laws according to the spirit of the Constitution will enable the court to mold them into whatever shape it may think proper, especially as its decisions will not be in any manner subject to the revision or correction of the legislative body that this is an unprecedented as it is dangerous. And in Britain, the judicial power in the last resort resides in the House of Lords, which is a branch of the legislature, and this part of the British government had been imitated in the state constitution in general, and the Parliament of Great Britain and the legislature of the several states can at any time rectify the law by the exceptionable decisions of the respective courts, but the errors and usurpations of the Supreme Court of the United States will be uncontrollable and remediless. So, in dismissing this conclusion, Hamilton asserted that the argument will be found altogether made up of false reasoning upon misconceived fact. All right. Point five, judicial review limited to explicit violations. So in the first place, Hamilton said, there is not a syllable in the plan under consideration which directly empowers the national courts to construe the laws according to the spirit of the Constitution or which give them any great latitude in this respect than may be claimed by the courts of every state. Of course, Brutus had never said that the Constitution explicitly authorizes the judges to interpret the Constitution according to its spirit. It was sufficient that the power was nowhere denied. Point six, the unsuitability of the judiciary as part of the legislature. So perhaps, said Hamilton, the anti-federalist complaint is directed to the fact that the Supreme Court was construed as a separate body rather than being one of the branches of the legislature, as in the governments of Great Britain and that of the state of New York. And in Britain, of course, members of the House of Lords, uh, lay peers no less than law lords, were empowered to rule on an appeal from a lower court and to void the decision, and Article 32 of the 1777 New York Constitution provided for appeals, quote, for correction of errors to be heard by a court composed of the President of the Senate, the Senators, Chancellor, and Judges of the Supreme Court, or of the major part of them, but denying judges a voice for affirmative, for affirmative reversal, end quote. So here, Hamilton was finally addressing Brutus's primary complaint that the national judiciary was totally free of accountability. In contrast to the way the appeals were handled in Great Britain, uh, for instance, the case of New York had not been mentioned by Brutus, but anyone familiar 
with the status of the judiciary there, was undoubtedly aware that it paralleled the British example in conferring on the legislature or on part of it supervisory authority over the judiciary. And in both instances, while the judges were free to express their views on matters of appeal, the final decision did not rest with the judges alone but with the representatives of the people who were ultimately accountable to the electorate. So in response, Hamilton argued that locating the judiciary within the legislature would come close to violating, at least partially, the separation of powers principle that was regarded by the anti-federalists as sacrosanct. It would also place the judiciary in a body marked by faction and politics and most suitable, excuse me, most unsuitable setting for judicial determination. Moreover, it was an even greater absurdity to suggest that men deficient in the knowledge of the law should be allowed to revise decisions reached by men expert in the law, and that all of these considerations, Hamilton said, undoubtedly influenced most of the other states, other than New York, to commit the judicial power not to a part of their legislature, but to a distinct and separate body. And besides, in any case, the national legislature will always be free as the legislatures of these states to enact fresh laws to modify the decision of the court in future cases. Needless to say, none of these answers effectively dealt with Brutus's fundamental complaint that the authors of the Constitution had unwittingly created an institution which, in contrast to all other institutions under the Constitution, was totally free of checks and balances, and free, that is, even of the basic requirement of any ordered system of government, that being accountability. And, finally, Hamilton contended that the supposed danger of the judiciary and its encroachments on the legislative authority which had been, upon many occasions reiterated, is in reality a phantom. Occasional misconstructions and contraventions of the will of the legislature may now and then happen, but these would not seriously or drastically affect the order of the political system that could be inferred, Hamilton said, from the general nature of the judicial power, or from the objects to which it relates. And from the manner in which it is exercised from its comparative weakness, and from its total incapacity to support usurpations by force, and such an interference is gratefully fortified by the important constitutional check which Congress could institute against the judges through impeachment. And this is alone a complete security. That there can never be danger that the judges, by a series of deliberate usurpations on the authority of the legislature, would hazard the united resentment of the body entrusted with it while this body was possessed of the means of punishment, their presumption by degrading them from their stations. So thus, uh, really in short, I guess, Hamilton was 
rejecting Brutus's argument regarding judicial supremacy by asserting, first of all, that the inherent weakness of the judiciary would, that it would, excuse me, the judiciary would ensure that it would not exercise a freewheeling interpretation of the Constitution contrary to the wishes of Congress, and secondly, that the judiciary and the threat of impeachment to it would serve as a complete security against the danger of judicial aggrandizement of authority. Now, as noted earlier, Brutus had dismissed the threat of impeachment as an inhibiting factor against judicial supremacy. Nor is it necessary to refer to judicial history to demonstrate that all of the so-called safeguards adduced by Hamilton would be quite insufficient to restrain the judiciary bent on exercising a form of judicial supremacy. Brutus had discounted in advance each of these so-called safeguards and had established quite clearly that, if judges wished, the road to judicial supremacy was open to them. And so really, Hamilton's attempt, therefore, in Federalist 78 and in Federalist 81 to rebut Brutus's conclusion and the danger of judicial supremacy constituted, uh, in the final analysis, a complete and abject failure. It was Brutus's thesis that represented and still represents a powerful indictment of the handiwork of the framers who unwittingly created one organ of government totally free of checks and balances despite the fact that this principle was supposed to be a mainstay of the Republican system of government that they were establishing, but in the absence of any requirement of accountability, that organ of government was free to assert the right to rule the roots and exercise supremacy. Now it is noteworthy that Madison recognized this fact only belatedly when the Constitution had already been ratified and was about to be implemented. At the Constitutional Convention, Madison had proposed that the National Legislature serve as the umpire of the federal system. He advocated arming that body with a veto over state legislation. And initially, the convention accepted his proposal for a congressional veto over, con uh, over unconstitutional state legislation, with Congress acting as a constitutional court of sorts, the road to judicial review and supremacy would appear to have been largely foreclosed. And subsequently, however, the convention rejected Madison's legislative veto entirely and implicitly made the judiciary the umpire of the federal system. This opened the door to judicial review of federal legislation generally, and hence to judicial supremacy. And Madison was chagrined at the refusal of the convention to adopt his legislative veto proposal. His dismay over the prospect of judicial supremacy is reflected in his 1788 observation on Jefferson's draft constitution for Virginia, in which James Madison wrote as follows, quote, In the state constitutions, 
and indeed in the federal one also, no provision is made for the case of a disagreement in expounding them, and as the courts are generally the last in making their decision, it results to them by refusing or not refusing to execute a law to stamp it with a final character. This makes the judicial department paramount, in fact, to the legislature, which was never intended and can never be proper. He proposed that in each of these governments, after an intervening election, a supermajority of both houses of the legislature, uh, that would be two-thirds or three-fourths, be qualified to override an executive or judicial veto. And it, he said it is to not be allowed that the judges or the executive pronounce a law thus enacted unconstitutional and invalid. So really, Madison's cardinal tenet was that the unchecked power in human hands was liable to abuse, and hence the government was the least imperfect which could keep a check on all exercise of power and authority. And in relation to the court, Madison, of course, never pursued this thought, and nothing came of his proposal for reigning in the judiciary. So, with Federalist 78, which appeared even before the Constitution was ratified and entered into force, what we find is this well-known and early exposition of and justification for judicial review. And as I mentioned before, what is much less well-known is that this essay by Hamilton represented a rejoinder on the convention of the Anti-Federalist Essays of Brutus, and that they furnished the basis not only for judicial review, but for judicial supremacy. And sound government, Brutus had written, required that the three branches of government be both separate and accountable. Yet he said the Constitution, while provided for checks and balances in relation to the, legislator, the legislature and executive, imposed no restraints on the Supreme Court. Once the tribunal was seized of a case, it would be free to rule as it choose and was accountable to no outside source, since its voice would be the last pronouncement in the process of legislation. Its rulings would effectively bind the other two branches, and government policy would thus be largely determined by an unelected body. Now, Hamilton's attempt to deny Brutus's charges that the Constitution gave license to judicial supremacy is seen, upon analysis, to be quite unpersuasive. James Madison, father of the Constitution, belatedly came to realize and regret the manner in which an unfettered court could exercise domination over the other two branches of the federal government. Under Madison's original constitutional scheme, the national legislature would serve as the umpire of the federal system, and the court's role would have been restricted. So there would thus have been little room for judicial review of federal legislation, much less for judicial supremacy. But the convention rejected his proposal for a legislative veto over state legislation, and as a result, the court was uh, in ensconced. Excuse me, the court was ensconced as the umpire of the federal system. Therewith, 
judicial review, and with it, judicial supremacy were, uh, at least though unwittingly, certainly instituted under the U.S. Constitution. Alright, well, I want to thank you all so much for watching here today. Uh, if you like the episode, there's a few things that you can do to show me some love. First, take a moment, if you're not already, and subscribe to the channel to make sure that you always get updates uh, that let you know when new content comes out. Now, you can let me know you like the show by hitting that thumbs up button. And I guess if you just like the show, you can show me by hitting that thumbs down button. I don't know. Uh, anyways, don't forget to leave me a comment letting me know what you think about uh, about this format and would you like to see more videos like this in the near future? And do you maybe even have a suggested title for this ongoing series? Something better than my working title of Constitution in Context. If you do, I would love to hear it. Let me know and if I like it enough, I just might even use it. Now, if you are able to become a patron to the show, it would be really helpful. Um, you can do this by following the links in the description to join me over at Patreon, Locals.com, or Anchor.fm. And at any of those sites, you can support the channel uh, for the low, low price of as little as 2 bucks a month. And when you do it, you get all kinds of extra goodies uh, when you become a monthly patron that way. Otherwise... If you liked a particular episode, you want to uh, leave a tip via Venmo or PayPal, you can do that as well. Of course, too, the links to the support pages are all down in the video description below you. And if you can't afford to uh, give to the show right now that way, that's totally all right. I still very much appreciate you coming by and spending some of your time here today with me all the same. If you could at least just think of one person you know who you think would really uh, like this episode and would really find this information interesting or useful and just share the show with them. If you would help me grow the channel that way, I would be very grateful for your help. So I will be back uh, very soon with another video. We're going to be talking about uh, the vaccine mandates and I'm going to be talking about how insanely, insanely corrupt and illegal and unconstitutional every single aspect of it is. You're not going to want to miss it. It's going to be really interesting. Uh, so I guess really all that's left to do is until then to say uh, thank you so much for watching. Uh, this has been me, Categorical, uh, me, Lockheed and Liberal, for Categorical Imperatives, talking about Brutus and Publius and Judicial Review. And uh, of course, as always, you know, uh, Delinda, that's Carthago. Mother